on this episode of the Ulster Rugby Lad podcast, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Ulster Rugby legend Andy Ward. Every Ulster fan will know Andy Ward. I remember watching him as a kid and thinking that he's hard as nails. I was and still am a huge fan of his. A rock solid and unflappable presence for Ulster, he was, like all good flankers, the heartbeat of the team and had the respect of his teammates and fans. Andy was also part of the legendary Ulster team that won the European Cup in 1999. And he went on to captain Ulster and he also got 28 caps for Ireland and played at the World Cup. After leaving Ulster, he continued to play for Balna Hinch, he coached Belfast Harlequins and Cook, he opened a successful chain of gyms and he did punditry for BBC Northern Ireland. He now has his own business doing gardening and landscaping called Silver Fern. I could have sat and spoken to Andy all day, he has some class stories. I really enjoyed it and I hope you enjoy listening. Andy, such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you. And uh, you're one of several 1999 legends who won the European Cup with Ulster. And we'll get to that. But first of all, uh, how is life treating you after rugby? Um, unlike the, the, the modern day rugby player, they don't have to do too much after rugby, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I uh, started up a, a Silver Fern um, garden maintenance yeah. Thing. So, uh, so yeah, we're flat out with that at the minute. It's going really good. So I've just relocated nice. up here. It's just going to take a little bit of time to get it started up here. But uh, yeah. So yeah. in the meantime, I'm still traveling back and down to do a lot of working around Belfast, which is great. So keep that Very going. Very good. Some of the first things I ask everyone is, is how did you get your passion for rugby in the first place? How did you get into rugby? Oh, mate, listen, uh, getting the passion for rugby, you know, if you, if you, when you're in New Zealand, it's... Uh, if you if you don't have an interest in rugby, there's something wrong with you, you know. So it's uh, it's it's runs through everybody's veins out in New Zealand, and uh, the town that I came from was a place called Cambridge, probably population about eight thousand people, and I think it hosted three senior rugby clubs. And on a Saturday morning, most of the uh, most of those rugby clubs supported maybe three to four hundred kids at each club on a Saturday morning. So and everybody up to the age of twelve was. You'd play in bare feet, so uh, yeah. you know it's it's a bit of a tightener, but it was a good change for the world, you know. And it's a, a very competitive environment all the way through. So yeah, um, I was fortunate enough when I was oh gosh, I must have been about uh, twelve or thirteen, I think, and um, going to play in my sort of got represented this uh, local representative team. It was like a roller mill, what they call a roller mills sort of style thing. And uh, it all went in New Zealand. It's all, it's all to do with a, uh, weight, not necessarily your age. So I was in, the, I don't know what it was. It was on, say, it was under the under 50 kilo section or whatever was that age and things. So um, it's that competitive. I remember every player in the team had to jump on a set of sheep weighing scales, which they'd weigh the weight, uh, the big uh, wool bales with. Yeah. And I was about, oh, must have been about half a kilo overweight or something like that, you see. And I was playing scrum yeah. half in those days. So the coach made me put on about six layers of clothes and I had to do laps upon laps. <laughs> Come back in and then I stripped down into my, um, into my, um, into the knickers, stand on the thing. And <laughs> but I was good for nothing there after because I was so knackered by it. It was amazing. But that, for me, yeah. that's just the intensity of New Zealand. You know, it's, yeah. it's if you want to the grade, you've got to go for it. So, uh, but no, it was good. So passion's been here for a long time ago. Yeah, it's like a boxing way in, uh, you know, yeah, down, down very much so, you know. 
That's and too like funny. I, was, I was just standing up there like a never sweet sheep boy. <laughs> and I just, I thought, what am I doing? What, what's this all about? <laughs> I was just like, you're hoping and praying. I had to go to the toilet and everything first to try and push one out. And I'm but I've actually got on. We did all right in the tournament, if I remember rightly, too. So uh, it yeah, was, it was all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's funny. Stuff. And so, so you started uh, you were sort of growing up playing rugby. Did you have sort of family members, parents, siblings, or anything that, that really got you into rugby? Um, not no. really, yeah. I'm the youngest. I have uh, two brothers and my sister, who's the eldest. So um, my next brother up from me would have played rugby, and that's it. Um, my eldest brother, he played hockey. Dad would have played hockey when he was a youngster in New Zealand growing up. So rugby was just sort of came into our family relatively late, I suppose. And yeah. if I look yeah. at my cousins and things like that, not many of me that played rugby either. So, um, and I know when I, so I played rugby all the way through sort of youth school and stuff. When I got to secondary school, I gave it up and took up, I used to race BMX bikes when I was about 14, from the age of sort of 13 through to 18, I suppose, 19. Yeah. And I got to the stage, I raced competitively at that in New Zealand. And as a 16-year-old, you could turn professional at it because we were racing for money. So I was in this, I got to the point where I was in the top sort of five or six in New Zealand. And we were making finals every weekend. So I would come home as a 16-year-old with maybe two and a half grand in my pocket. So um, I thought, you know, rugby can take a high jump for a dad too. And I, <laughs> so I, was I, went, I, I ended up competing in two world championships and, uh, one was in America and the, the, the latter one, I was, I think I was 18. I was in Australia. So I made the top 16 in the world one year. So I thought yes, that's sir. not a bad shout. So, uh, yeah, once I finished that, I wasn't going to go anywhere further. And someone gave me a call and says, why don't you start playing a bit of rugby? So picked yeah. it back up and the rest is history, I suppose. That's right. Yes. And that's amazing. So you obviously excelled at a couple of sports, um, the BMXing. And yeah. is, that, is that legitimately on the cards as a career? Like if you're making a couple of grand, uh, it probably more so now. I mean, back then in New Zealand, it was, it was, yeah, it's big stuff. I mean, you just have to watch it now and, um, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty explosive sort of sport. Um, so, um, but there's boys who race professionally now and, and that's what they do and they make good money at it, you know? Yeah. Uh, funny. I still do a bit of mountain biking and I, I suppose I have a bit of an adrenaline junkie side of me and, yeah. Um, I like to tear down the side of a mountain at stupid speed and, and come over sort of silly stuff, which you, you struggle to walk down sometimes. And yeah. I sort of get to the bottom and I'm not as brave as I used to be, I must admit. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I stood up on a BMX start line now. I'm looking at the ramps as you take off on them and I'm sort of going, oh, I don't know if I've got the minerals for this anymore, to be honest. Like, yeah, so, uh, yeah, you've finally seen some sense. I'd, anyway. I'd, I'd, <laughs> rather ta- I'd rather tackle an 18 stone South African than down on a mountain bike. So, uh, but there's Either. a good crack. Either way, uh, sounds like you're you are an adrenaline junkie because both of those situations sound pretty intimidating. Um, yeah. But uh, see, when you're at school, though, I'm always interested. Did you stand out as a rugby player? Some people develop later on. I, I know it's, yeah. hard, it's, a, it's probably a hard question to answer, but do you remember sort of standing out and thinking this this is an alternative career? Do you know um, this is something? Yeah. I would like to do. No, uh, definitely not, actually. I, um, it wasn't, as I say, I didn't play a lot of rugby when I was at secondary school, so I didn't really – I played a little bit, and, um, but I wasn't that fussed on it And because the family wasn't smashing and grabbing at rugby as well. It, we just sort of left it by the wayside. It wasn't until I actually finished school and I really got into the rugby a bit more and um, – went i started doing well at senior rugby i started playing senior rugby when i was 19 and um 
and uh, yeah, so it must have turned a few heads in, in the right areas and, and then got picked up by a, a, what I would say a, a pretty strong club and they still are to this day, actually Hautapu in the, in the Waikato region. So I think they've won it, the competition in the last uh, oh, five or six years. I think they won it four or five times. So they've you know, a pretty strong club and they picked me up from there and then I ended up playing for Waikato B and um so things happened really really quick actually at the age of 19 and 20 so uh and then i got a phone call to come over to ireland for six months and uh goodness me it's 27 years ago now so uh yeah i only, yeah. I only came out for six months i'm still here so that's uh, worked out <laughs> <all> right <laughs> yeah. I, I know i'm interested to hear more about that i suppose there weren't many foreign imports in irish rugby at the time in terms of your journey to ulster tell me a bit more about that process uh, you know, this, yeah, I mean, this, this I, call that you here. yeah, I got a. It's not like it was to like it is today. Sorry, they, um, you know, the guys today can come over and play one week to the next and uh, land on a Friday and play on the Saturday effectively. So, uh, but when I came over, it was in 1994, and um, so I had to do. I was a generation out from having resident natural residency, so uh, I had to do that sort of three-year term before I could play at any level above club level so yeah. uh, Bal Hinch basically got on the bandwagon there's a guy coaching a banger gentleman called uh, Duncan Dysart and he rallied around a few of the clubs and said listen if you want any foreign players give me a call so Bal yeah. Hinch I think the only ones who actually rung him and got in touch and he came back to New Zealand I was playing for Waikato B team and uh, he gave me a call and said do you want to go to play rugby in Ireland I said well where's that and um <laughs> He says, better than that, he says, it's Northern Ireland. I said, oh, that's like a scene from Beirut, isn't it? So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. so hey, within two weeks of taking that phone call, I landed in Belfast and picked up by the, the infamous uh, Philip Gregg at the time and, uh, and stayed with him. And I landed on a Thursday morning, I'll never forget, landed on a Thursday morning and, and rocked up to training Thursday night. So, um, <laughs> And they, they were expecting a second row, and I thought, "Geez, I better make an impression here." So yeah. all these local fellows were trying to see what uh, see what I was made of, and they had a couple of drills. And I thought, "Right, the first person I, who's coming at me with a bag, I'm going to have to make an impression." So it was it's transpired. He's still a very good friend of mine, a gentleman called Ian Dornan. A lot of people might know him, and uh, he's a character to say the least. And he uh, he got the wrath of uh, Andy Ward that night. And, um, <laughs> a jet lagged Andy Ward. We, just yeah, we still we still talk about it this day. <laughs> and um, the boys said, "If you try to pint to Guinness," and I said, "Not a chance." And so uh, before we left the clubhouse that night, I think I knocked over about eight or nine pints of Guinness and uh, woke up <laughs> next day. I think I got out of bed about two o'clock or something. I think the jet lag kicked in. And, I don't know it was jet lag or maybe it was a, a consequence of eight or nine pints <laughs> That was my initiation. And, and um, so I did three years with, with Bell Hinch and we, we, we had a really good journey at the start. We, we, we did very well in the junior leagues and Bell Hinch were very strong back in those days yeah. as well. And um, we ended up, they opened up from junior rugby. You could uh, promote yourself into senior ranks and um, Bell Hinch, we got into the playoffs with that and, and and we jumped into Division Four in the following year. We jumped up again to Division Three, and and then I got a, a nod from the selectors in Ulster and uh, and obviously at Ireland as well. So, but I have a good story actually. It was um, I was uh, the rugby club had supplied me a car, and I was working for Down High School at the time, and I uh, I drove over to Down High School from Bell Hinch to help out at the school. 
so helping with the, in the sports and stuff like that. And uh, I was coming home one day and it was a cracking day and the car I had was a wee Hugo and it got a flat tire. And I... So at this point in the podcast, we had some technical difficulties. The sound stopped working very well. So rather than make you sit through really poor sound quality, and it only lasts a couple of minutes, so don't worry, we soon resolved the issue. What I'll do instead is Andy was going to tell a story about why he ended up staying in Northern Ireland. He was only supposed to be here quite briefly, but he ended up obviously staying for like 25 years. So what I'll do is I'll replace the story with a passage from Jonathan Bradley's book called The Last Amateurs, which is a very good book. And uh, it won't be as good as the way Andy tells it, but I'll read out uh, the bit from the book so you don't miss out on the story. What was expected to be a short sojourn on the other side of the world turned on a chance encounter and a spot of car trouble. With his BMX income having dried up, Ward hadn't yet decided how best to make his way in the world. He was enjoying himself in a variety of odd jobs he'd picked up while on his travels. Some days he'd be outside all day, potting plants in the garden centre. Others he'd spend cleaning the paintbrushes for Down High's art teachers before donning a tracksuit and assisting the PE department. He'd been driving to work on a sunny summer's day when his Peugeot got a flat tyre. With no jack and in the days before mobile phones, his only hope was the kindness of strangers. The country roads that link the county down's moderately sized towns are hardly busy highways or byways, so Ward was relieved that the first door he knocked upon was opened and was even more reassured when he was told that of course he could make a call from the phone inside. A friend with the required tools to change the flat an hour in arriving, so like all good Kiwi boys, he made the most of the rare opportunity to get some sun. Sitting on the bonnet of a stricken vehicle, with his shirt discarded as he enjoyed the rise, he soon had company for the wait. All I heard was the squeak of a door and the rattle of a tray, he says. The next thing, these two old ladies, two sisters, came down with a pot of tea and sandwiches. We sat together having a great day's crack, talking about this, that and the other. Not long after, and quicker than he would have liked, Ward found his stint in the Northern Hemisphere was up and he returned home to his family and friends. Far from being greeted as a prodigal son, he was taking a short stroll to his local pub, offering greetings to those he passed in the way when he was struck by an epiphany. There was a fellow in the garden, waiting away, and it was a cracking morning. I just said to him good morning, no acknowledgement, nothing, didn't even look up. I said hello to the next person I saw, same thing, didn't even look up at me. I just thought to myself, if I'd been in Ireland, but those two old ladies, who didn't even know me from Adam, took the time to spend the whole afternoon with me. How different that morning would have been. That summed up Ulster and its people to me. My mind was made up. I finished walking to the pub. I told the boys, bollocks to this, I'm going back. And that was that. The rest is history. The next 24, 25 years have been down to those two old ladies. So it's a good story from Andy. And uh, we'll go back to the podcast here because the sound sorts itself out. Growing up in New Zealand, you have like rugby heroes. Did you look up the All Blacks and go, like, is there anyone that you particularly idolised when, when you're growing up? Or um... yeah, there were some guys there. I mean, listen, for New Zealand, every year you could always have a couple of idols there. Even to this day, as, as boys in there, I just go, oh my goodness, he's awesome, sort of thing, you know. Yeah. So, um, but back in my day, I suppose you have the likes of Buck Shelford who played number eight for them and stuff. And then you've got Zinzan Brook. Michael Jones is another absolute cracker in the back row. So, um, but listen, we have some, uh, there's just, you can just rattle them off the top of your head. There's many, many players. But for me, Buck Shelford, if anybody has a, a moment or two to read his book and stuff, get a chance to read it. He was a hardy boy, to, to say the least. Um, 
he tells a great story playing against the French and um, he was unfortunate he got uh, his, his lower region uh, stood on or, or something gouged it uh, just before half time and he came into the change rooms at half time and sitting on the bench and um, it was an awful pile of blood running down the inside of his leg and they said well, what's going on here and turns out he had completely torn himself downstairs everything was hanging out so the doc came in stitched him up and he ran back out in the second half i thought oh my days there is a brick of a man right there so um, oh my goodness just, he was a good hardy boy and uh, yeah so for me wayne, wayne shelford was a cracker good captain yeah. as well i know fair play you don't, you, they don't make them like that anymore that's no cool. they don't no no they definitely don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> um uh, in terms of coming to Ulster and, and sort of getting into the senior team, so we're talking about sort of around 1997, is that right? So you've been here a few yeah. years. Yeah. Um, so stepping into that squad, um, at that stage would have been um, amateur, moving into professional. Uh, right. What was the atmosphere like in the squad um, whenever you came into it? Were you impressed? Were you thinking, um, do you know, I suppose you you played for so long for Balmains and things like that. What was yeah. the difference between coming into Ulster? What was the atmosphere in that squad like? Um, it's strange uh, because it was uh, it was almost not not that it was a closed shop in a sense, but there was always you know back in those days, uh, Balmains were 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 just a small club, hmm. so it was pretty much inundated with the likes of Balaminers and Dungannons and all these sorts of guys and that and um, and Stonians and, and things. So there was a, a, a certain a, a pedigree, I presume, over the years back in the day where, and so I was almost like a bit of AOS from New Zealand. So I was the first sort of foreigner to come into the scene as well, which was a little yeah. bit sort of, and, and who's this guy um, yeah. sort of thing. So I had to sort of jump through those sort of hurdles and prove myself again once I got in there because I tried to do it at club level and, did that okay and uh and then try to have to take it to another level at the provincial side so um but it was completely different from where it is these days and um um and, and yet again once you break into it i found that once i sort of broke into those sorts of things the players were sort of very much open arms you know they were sort of yeah. once you earned your stripes as it were um like i've lifelong friends there now and um and that's something to behold and i just that's the part of rugby for me which is pretty awesome um, it stands out. I mean, it's not just uh, localized here to Northern Ireland. I think it's worldwide. But um, yeah, so no, it was, it was good. Strange times. I mean, we went through some in those earlier days. It was just weird because you didn't play a whole lot of games. In fairness, you know. So uh, yeah. I, mean, I think I was in Ulster for about thirteen or fourteen years, and and probably racked up more caps towards the end of that career as opposed mm. to the start, just because the the schedules got a lot busier. Yeah. Throughout, so, uh, but in the early days, it was it was very much uh, an amateur game, and um, yeah, we tried to step into professionalism, and uh, no one really knew there wasn't a recipe for that. So no one, we were just sort of, you know, five or six of the guys went professional, and the other guys had to work, so we couldn't even train until they sort of knocked off work. And so the five or six of us were, we just sort of sort of twiddling our thumbs and going to the gym and doing things and didn't even know what we're doing properly in the gym and says, Oh, that guy's doing bench press. We'll have a go at that. You know, sort yeah. of very unprofessional if that made sense. So. Yeah. That's something else I'm interested in. Do you know what were the, you, you, you sort of played through that transition from amateurism to professionalism. Yeah. 
what changes did you see in the game and training and everything um, and how quickly did it change? Did people, I suppose it took a while to get used to the idea of this is your, your job now. And um, yeah. yeah, very much so. And um, like even, even the coaching staff and stuff like that, you know, they didn't have full-time fitness, uh, fitness guys with us. You know, it was just the coaches and says, okay, you got these guys full-time and, you know, so there wasn't this, initially there weren't these um, training programs put together for us, for individuals. It was just a collective, maybe a weights program that came up from Dublin sort of thing and says, right, everybody go and do that. And um, so it was really weird. And, and whilst we're in a professional era, um, no one really knew what that meant. Yes, mm. the only thing they sort of knew was that we didn't have to turn up on a nine to five and go to work. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of that structure, that out and out structure, it was very much... Um, a bit novice, I suppose, in a professional era. So it, it took a few years for to, to click forward and, and for people to really embrace it properly and, and get into the groove. There's no way you could have five team, five players from a, in a squad that were professional and the rest weren't. You know, that was yeah. it, it was either all or nothing. You can't, you can't just like. Oh, it was, it was, I was so so bizarre and surreal at the time when you think about it, but. Um, I was just fortunate enough to be one of the five, I suppose, because the other poor yeah. buggers had to go to work and then turn up. And I know. Do. But the, the way I look at it as well, the generation prior to me, the Davy Irwins and uh, Dennis McBrides and these sorts of guys, you know, they must have been sitting there going, I can't believe it. All the caps and all the trainings and everything that I did and didn't get diddly squat for it. Yeah. And these buggers must have thought we were like royalty at that point. And, um, <laughs> yeah. But then I look at it now, the same sort of uh, uh, token as what these guys, I mean, the same level I was at, you know, those sorts of guys are probably getting upwards of 300 grand a year, you know? So yeah. it's, um, yeah, I know. Strange things. Yeah, I know. As you're saying at the start there, you know, a lot of guys, um, uh, particularly from your era, you know, they had been doing something before playing rugby or alongside playing rugby and then had something sorted for whenever they finished as well. Whereas now you've got guys who probably don't need to think about it for a few years or they can take it easy. They've probably yeah. paid for their house or whatever. I don't know, but um, certainly the, the amount of time that you paid played for Ulster and playing in modern days, you know, that, that would represent quite a, quite a good income. Um, but in terms of uh, that squad and the progression, I suppose, to the sort of the pinnacle of, of Ulster rugby history and, and uh, I imagine of your career as well, the 99 final, tell me a bit about what made that squad special. What bonded you together and I suppose what, what, what it was like a bit being part of a European Cup, the only European Cup winning squad Ulster has ever had? Yeah, it's... Um... It seems that's a long time ago, uh, and if I look at the calendar, it is a long time ago, but at the same time, it feels like it was only a year and a half ago. Um, so that, to me, says a lot about the, the journey that we went on that particular year that was such a, uh, such a strong thing and an indelible sort of etch mark on, on, on my personal journey, and I think everybody in that squad, we can, we can meet up tomorrow. If we were all to meet up tomorrow, it would be like just we've walked out of the change room on the 99 final. You know, it's, it's that's such a tight bond in there, and it's not to say that other teams don't have that, but we certainly had that. I mean, on paper, we shouldn't have been anywhere near that final. Um, but you don't win rugby or any sport for that matter on a piece of paper. Um, it's in the top six inches and uh, collectively we came together in a, in a, just a fantastic way. Everything just seemed to click and 
you know, we had a lot of fortune as well. I mean, Sheldon Coulter away to Edinburgh got an intercept try to get us a home quarterfinal or, and so on. So, and then Ebervale happened to beat Toulouse at home, which also put us through. So, you know, those sorts of things are just going, when, when, when things like that happen, like Toulouse should never have lost to Ebervale. You know what yeah. I mean? And but when those things start to happen, you actually look up into the sky and go, Oh, something's on a move here, something something's good's coming our way. So we all bought into that and um we were a very tight, tight bunch of guys. As I say, we we could meet up tomorrow morning and it'll just be like we left from where it was and, and I don't really know exactly I couldn't to this day put my finger on exactly what that process was or how that process came about, but the further into the into the tournament and so forth that we got, the tighter and tighter it became, the more belief. And I think over time we started, and it's true what they say, and, and many many teams who had success have always said this, that um, winning breeds success. Mm. And um, so we started to believe in that and we got more confident and things were happening. We started to play out of our skins and and cover each other's backs, which is, I think is a big thing on the pitch as well. When someone was, you know, we always had backup. If someone missed a tackle, bang, someone got it. It wasn't like, you know, we always had that sort of back door for each other. And um, it was just tight. Uh, and uh, needless to say, there was a few pints taken post-match as well. Not, uh, you didn't see too many boys in the corner chucking down a protein shake and a bit of creatine or something, you know, it was very much, uh, yeah, there was, there was plenty of cans of beer floating about in our day. Yeah, well, that's what so something Rory Best always reflects on is is the best way to to bond the squad, uh, sort of a night out or, or sort of getting together as friends. Uh, yeah. I think maybe there's an overemphasis on maybe maybe an overemphasis on training and things like that. I mean, obviously that's important, but in terms yeah. of getting a tight knit squad, it's almost equally as important to for guys to get on on a personal level and, and trust each other as teammates. That'd be fair to say. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a hundred percent right. And um, you know, we 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 were socialising together a lot. We were going out. We're in each other's pockets. We were like, you know, we had twenty five best mates there, and and that came across on the pitch. I think when you know, you know, we had cross times at each other when we we're in there, and um, you know, you'd give off to somebody, but post match would be straight in, sort of. Yeah, sorry about that, fella. I didn't mean to, you know. But I said, but you understand where it's coming. Oh yeah, no, hundred percent, Woody, sweet, no problem. You dickhead, um, <laughs> you know it, it was like that sort of thing. But it was um, it was purely out of respect for each other that we we would have jumped on each other. But at the same time, everybody knew that it wasn't a personal dig. It was just a heat of the moment deal. And um, yeah. but that all came together. I mean, we were we were a tight bunch of boys. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Uh, it was one of my earliest rugby. Again, not an attempt. It's not an attempt to make you feel old. It was one of my earliest rugby, <laughs> me- rugby memories. I was nine years old, and I remember going down to the game with my, my, uh, my family, and uh, it was the pre-match sort of lap of honour, and it just really whipped the crowd yeah. up. And just there, there was never any doubt, uh, as far as I could tell, who was going to win that game, and it was just yeah. uh, created a sense of belief in, in the fans and in each other, and an amazing yeah. accomplishment. And, and tell me a bit more about your time then. Obviously, that, that was must have been a highlight. Tell me a bit more about sort of highlights or things that you reflect most fondly on from your careers. Yeah, um, 
you know, it's it's uh, it's, it's interesting because you know, when I sit down, and it's only in the last, it's only at this time of my life that I can sit actually sit down. I've moved house a couple of times recently there, and you know, I've got a lot of jerseys framed up on walls and so forth. So when you sit there, and the way I have my jerseys and that framed on the walls, I've kept the program for that match day program and have it highlighted in the, in the centerpiece. So yeah. I look down. And, She's I played against some big boys there, and um, and so it's been it's been fantastic that the international side of things. Um, but I suppose playing, you know, take it right back to when I first came over to Bell Hinch, and you know, we had Towns Cup and Junior Cup winners and all that. And down at Ravenhill was a big day out, and yeah, you know, those those are big moments as well for the club and back in the day, and um, something that you just can't be taken away. And I never forget getting my first cap for Ireland. Um, I think I was. Uh, probably one of the very few to, to play for Ireland at that time who was selected from all AIL three, division three. So um, I was playing, uh, oh goodness, I can't even remember who it was now, Bell Hinch at home. We must've had about 80 people, two dogs and a stray cat watching the match. And um, two weeks later, I got my first cap in the Stade de France, which is an 80,000 all seater. And I just sort of, and they drive the bus when you come, you don't come to the front door in that stadium, you drive underneath the pitch and the buses yeah. turn around and, and I'm sort of walked out and four of my good mates, uh, Ian Dawn and uh, the guy I ran over on day one and um, <laughs> my back row colleagues, Stephen Kelly, Brian Wilson and, and Michael Rogers uh, thought they'd make the big trip and uh, so they came over and as I walked out onto the pitch, they got there so early, they were up there and they were at the top shouting out. So we had this great conversation. I'll never forget the conversation we had on the side of the pitch going, Jesus, boys, this is unbelievable. This is surreal, isn't it? And they says, and the biggest complaint that they had is that because where the stadium is, they walked out and uh, typical country fellas thought they'd call them for a couple of beers. So they said they got four beers and four bowls of chips and they were absolutely distraught and gutted even to this day that it cost them a hundred quid. So um, they were they felt completely duped to the whole thing and uh, but wished me all the best and good luck anyway so <laughs> uh, so it, it was good so that there was my first cap and I think the next one Bell Hinch as a club um, when I had my first home game was in the Five Nations back then it was against Wales at home in Lansdowne Road it was my first home game there um, so Bell Hinch was a tremendous gesture to flow in my my mum and dad over to the match so yeah. uh, so I remember standing up for the national anthems there and I knew exactly where they were sitting, seating in the stadium facing me. And I just thought, you know, this is a pretty proud moment here to have my mum and dad bummed yeah. over from you. And so it was cool. So yeah. uh, that was a bit of a highlight as well. And I got my first try that particular day as well. And we happened to beat Wales. So, uh, so those were good days. And um, I, I think when Wales were the following year, I think they were building the, the Millennium Stadium and they were using Wembley as their home fixture list. And uh, we managed to get a game on Wembley and we beat them there again the following year, I think it was. And uh, back in the old changing rooms in Wembley, they had all the roll-top baths, big cast iron roll-top baths. And when you came in off the pitch, they're all filled and everything like that. So I never forget lying in these baths and they're all lined up side by side. And I remember sitting there, we had about four or five bottles of beer sort of bobbing in the water. And looking down the line and all the boys are there and we're all telling stories. Oh, I'd say Pele's been in this one and we're running through all these football andrews. We just thought, I just thought this is a real bizarre moment to be sitting in a <laughs> rock bath in Wembley after beating Wales in the Five Nations. So I'm going, this is a long way from Bell Lynch from, uh, yeah. and also from New Zealand. So uh, oh, it, it sure. was pretty cool. So yeah. There's been some good ones, but obviously one of the biggest ones for me is the European Cup stuff. I mean, the journey we went on there and, 
to see to see Bell and Hinch um, still giving it the stacks. But most importantly for that was um, the crowds. I remember going into the semifinals and the quarterfinals. Um, my son, my eldest son Zach, was born in the quarterfinal against uh, Toulouse, and yeah. I wasn't supposed to turn up for the pitch for the match. I was going to miss it, and um, I rung the coach. Or I got to we got to the hospital that morning of the match, and the Dr. Crooks, who was the, was the guy on call at the time, he came and he says, what are you guys doing here? He says, I've tickets for the match tonight. This can't be happening. So he says, he said, right, listen, I'll tell you what, we're going to do a deal here because I want you to play. We can do an epidural and have this baby when we want. And I just thought, brilliant, that was such a laugh. We had such a laugh. And um, so I discussed it with my wife at that point, Wendy, and um, we, she, we sort of agreed, right, listen, go play the match. So we rung the coach and, he said, listen, fella, if you want, I can, I can be there. And he said, right, awesome. I'm not going to tell the players, just come on in the change room. So I came into the change room just prior to the boys going out for a warm-up. And it was just a real lift for everybody. Yeah. And I think that lift for them gave me a lift. Um, so it was just a, it was a two-way thing. So uh, it turned out awesome. And, yeah, we just happened to come off. And Sir Ronnie Flanagan at the time, he was a chief of police I came off just after the second half and we were leading 13-3, I think, at that point. And the crowd was going daft and they, you know, because everybody knew what the script was and yeah. it was publicised at the time. And Sir Ronnie comes, I get the phone call off, I go, and Sir Ronnie comes in the change room and goes, Andy, my good friend, he says, uh, my car is sitting in the car park here. My driver will take you there. So I think we did uh, Ravenhill to the Lagan, View, uh, Lagan Valley Hospital in about 12 minutes flat. And I'm just going, this is awesome. <laughs> so, and when we got there, it's the uh, screen, all the screens are on and bits and bobs. And I was in and out of the maternity ward just watching TV and, and then Toulouse scored a try. And I thought, oh, couldn't be happening. The next thing we won. So, uh, so that was a pretty yeah. awesome 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 journey and zach now is uh he's a big boy now he's uh he's playing for balance first in the same oh, position so uh yeah he's sent in england he's a cracking rugby player as well so yeah. Uh, yeah. very proud to watch him play and wear the same jerseys i did so it's, uh, it's fantastic cool. fantastic that's a, that's a great story um a double celebration for you that night anyway that's that's yeah. amazing and good commitment as well putting your priorities in the right place <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people wouldn't uh, wouldn't go down that road too much. I think Ian Henderson recently wouldn't go and play a match because he had the baby. Oh, man, I yeah, come on. <laughs> I know we need to take lessons. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, t- tell me a bit more. So you, have you got your, your son's playing now as a flanker for uh, for Balma Hinch? Uh, you know, and do you um, impart a lot of wisdom uh, in terms of? your experience playing there, what do you tell them about, what are the key factors about playing, playing as a flanker? Listen, I have two boys, uh, Zach's the eldest and Bryn, who is just going into fifth year at Ince this year. So um, he's in the centre. He thought he was Sonny Bill Williams for a while. And then he's, uh, he's sort of, he's like one of them wee puppy dogs. They have the massive feet and they grow into them. Well, he started to grow into everything. And he's, he's going to be a big old boy now. He's going to be, I think, yeah. six, five, six, six. So oh, he's going to oh, be right. Um, but um, and he's moved into the back row as well. So you know what? It's just um, they're both pretty awesome, and they've got a few natural gifts and naturally strong. Zach's exceptionally naturally strong player. So it's just my attitude with him: just just keep uh, keep offloading, 
just practice offloading. Even though we're youngsters, I just as I say, them offload, offload, offload. And it's yeah. amazing that through the last handful of years, be it school and clubs and things like that, that a lot of their coaches would say to them, I don't want you to offload. We're going to play this structure and we're going to do that. And just, oh, you're killing individuals, man. So, because the, both of them have got a good skill set to offload because mm-hmm. we always maintain it, a little pass around the back and yeah. out of one hand, the back of the hand, all that sort of thing. And I says, never lose that. Never lose that ability mm-hmm. to do those things and because um, that'll help to set you apart. Yeah. So, um, but it's just amazing to hear coaches try and coach that out of players. And I mm-hmm. find that just a, a complete... Um, detrimental to the a to the game and b to the player most importantly so um so through it all i just say listen break a game down any young player out there always say them listen break a game down don't see a game as 80 minutes just see it in two halves and then you've got four 10 minute windows just concentrate on 10 minutes at a time don't get ahead of yourself stay calm and be the best you can in that 10 minutes and then when that clock ticks you go into the next 10 and next 10 next 10 take a break reassess Uh, so yeah it's just goal setting and and, um, even though you're playing a team environment the most important thing is that you can look yourself in the mirror and enjoy it wake up the next morning and say well you know what yes we won or yes we lost Uh, I gave myself 100% that's all I can ask for so yeah um, does that and that's what it is about a team and I love that's what I love about rugby is that it is a team thing and if we can have everybody on that same sort of page or that mindset as an yeah. individual mindset, um, then the collective thing will come together. Hopefully, it should do. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what sets good teams apart from bad teams. I think. Yeah, no, that's interesting about uh, the way teams are coached now. Um, that, I mm. mean, Ireland played that very rigid structure in the World Cup and in the build-up to the World Cup, and it didn't work out for them ultimately. It, it maybe works until yeah. teams figure out, and, and you become very predictable. Um, yeah, but, that's correct. The best players are able to, to have a bit of an X factor um, and, and offload and, and be creative. Yeah. And, and you've got it. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter what sport you're in. You've got to have that magic maker. And um, yeah. you know, I was fortunate enough in, in my time that we played with some cracking players and the likes of David Humphreys. Always had a bit of a bit of magic about him and did a few things and set stuff yeah. up. Keith Wood was another player for Ireland who always had a little bit of magic and a bit of something about him. But then I was fortunate enough also to be playing alongside young Brian Rodrisco when he came into the scene. And yeah. um, his resume speaks for itself. And it wasn't because those players stand out. It wasn't because they did what the coaches want. They all had their individualisms. And uh, mm. that's what set them all apart. So why would coaches try and take that away from an individual yeah. beyond me? So, um, Everybody should be enhanced and um, just say, listen, I don't, it's not that I don't want you to do it, mm-hmm. but just have the control to know when and when not to go for these things and, and be there. And that's what sets players apart. Of. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Trusting, so, trusting players and, uh, to, and enjoying, enjoying it as well. Yeah. See, if you're enjoying it, everything's a lot easier. It's like golfer. Huh? <laughs> Stephen Ferris <laughs> Fer- yeah. will tell you he enjoys golf, but the way he plays, I'm surprised, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's half the goal is, is trying not to break your clubs in anger playing golf and match that's it that's it with his swing he can't that'll never happen so he's fine <laughs> he's a player I've got to know Stevie a lot since we've both mm. sort of finished playing rugby with the commentary and um, I have to say that he's a true gentleman and and, and uh, I just regret one of the big regrets I have is that especially for Ulster because I love Ulster rugby and I, I love playing for Ulster and stuff is that I would love to have played with a powerhouse like Stevie Ferris, um, yeah. just an alpha, 
out and out rocket, but between him and Marcel Coetzee, I think we might have got on well as a back row. So, um, yeah, absolutely. But he's uh, he's a good lad. I have a good story about Stevie Ferris, and in, in his book, I think he actually goes. Uh, I remember playing. We were Bell Hinch playing against Dungannon, and I was playing number eight this particular time, and, and picked up, went around the side of the scrum, and I got absolutely smoked and sat on my bum without fire. I was still, I just finished playing for Ireland a year or two years prior. And uh, anybody's like, oh, big man got smoked. And I'm going, and I used to go up and go, who the frig is this player here? Turns out it's a young Stephen Ferris just out of school. And I thought, there's a boy. So whatever said, I helped set him up. Whatever he said, I, <laughs> I let him tackle me that particular night just so he springboard that child to where he is this day. <laughs> he has a lot to thank you for. Is he, he, oh, he has, does it right. Yeah, he's yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose in terms of... Um, but both of you as players, uh, as examples, Stephen Ferris is a slightly different type of player. Mm. How would you describe? I mean, how would you describe yourself uh, as a player? It's been probably long enough now to look back and reflect on it. What, whenever you went out in the pitch, what were your primary goals? I suppose you're sort of a heartbeat of the team. But what? Uh, how, how would you have seen it whenever you were playing? What did you go out intending to do? Yeah, I'd always set myself goals. And, and it's funny because I mean, we're talking over 20 years ago now when I was playing for Ireland and Ulster and stuff like that. at a good, a good lick. And um, I always set goals and personal goals to achieve within the game. So then, you know, I had this etched in my head that, okay, this particular game I wanted X, Y, and Z. So that might have been getting to turnovers, getting a um, few turnovers, um, line breaks, some offloads, um, things like that, you know. So and that, for me, got me into the game. And, and, and if I hadn't achieved that, so I would break my game down into 10-minute windows and stuff like that and say, right, in this 10 minutes, I want to achieve three turnovers seven or eight tackles so I was thinking okay if I can get between uh, seven and ten tackles every ten minutes that's going to be a huge tackle count mm. not necessarily always achievable but those are the goals that I'd set so I'd always keep working and, and I'd keep talking to myself throughout a game saying right here we go five minutes next five minutes next five minutes what am I going to do what am I going to do so uh, I kept myself on my toes as well and and I think by doing that it sort of helped to lift those around me as well because I was always plenty of energy and um mm. I suppose I had a good enough engine on me that I could keep going as well. So uh, fitness levels were pretty good. And um, but that was it. I would just I just sort of self motivate all the time. And yeah. I, I used to love going to intimidating places because I would just beat off the negativity and, and just sort of you know I, I found that a real challenge is to is to work uh, in a below par setting, yeah. uh, as it were, a bit of more of a hostile thing. That's why I enjoy playing against like some monster and stuff like that because you'd go down the Tolman Park and. You knew you're going to get an absolute kicking from the lads, but uh, there was a lot of respect gained in those matches just because they knew that I was going to go hammer and tongs as well, and, and I think that's a respect thing. So, yeah, uh, so yeah, no, it's just um, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I I think I wouldn't like if there's anything I would re maybe change what I'd done in my career. I couldn't put my finger on it. I'm very happy with the way things panned out. Um, it's funny people are always tommy knockers aren't they and i never forget that uh you know people would say oh geez he had this handed to him he had that handed to him listen i talked out for Bell for ulster on a friday night in bell lynch or in a relegation match on a sad day and i talked out for them as well and then on sunday go for a 10k run um and started all again on monday and nobody saw those runs because i used to yeah. go out in the back of the bell lynch and just go for those jogs on my own and um 
I kept my fitness up. And so I worked hard yeah. back in the day to achieve things. You know, I sort of got things late in life, as it were, and didn't get yeah. my first cap until I was sort of 27. So uh, in these days, if you don't get your cap, you're almost hang up your boots internationally. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's those extra, it's, it, it's that extra dedication doing a bit more than everyone else, which, which makes players stand out and puts them apart because there's such competition now. Um, and yeah. you obviously played with some very special players, uh, both for Ulster and Ireland. Who, who, was, who would you sort of um, point out or remember as being the best players that you played with? Is there any, Stephen Ferris is obviously one who sort of overlapped with him. Is there anyone else who's particularly uh, special that you played with? Yeah, um, there's, there's a little little unknown fellow that came out of New Zealand uh, on the wing, Jonah Lomu. I played with him and against him. Um, not many people know him. And uh, I have a great story about Big Jonah. We played, I was fortunate enough to get selected to play for the Barbarians, and we played against South Africa in the Millennium Stadium. And uh, Jonah, thankfully, was on my team. And... Um, uh, I brought my wife over to Wales that particular weekend and uh, the match wasn't until sort of Saturday evening and we decided to go for a walk through Cardiff on, on the Saturday morning and coming across the square was this huge big fella and Jonah, people probably don't recognise, but Jonah was a big boy and he's about six foot five, six six, and he could do the 100 metres in around 10 seconds or so, so he was a bit of a specimen to say the least and um, Back in the day, I mean, Jonah was the Cristiano Ronaldo of, of world rugby anyway, and everybody knew him. Well, everybody, it seemed, but my wife, because we walked across the square, and Jonah had been out shopping. He had about eight or nine little Cardiff kids all carrying their shopping bags for him. He said, man's a rock star, right? So I pull over, and I says, oh, Jonah, how you going, big son? You out shopping? He says, oh, get a water, yeah, just, just going for a bit of a shop there. And uh, so I introduced the wife. I said, Wendy, this is uh, Jonah. And she looked up at him and like, he's a big man. He puts a hand in. He goes, oh, here you go, Wendy. She goes, uh, so do you play rugby then? And, I, <laughs> and he looked at me and he absolutely melted himself. And I just looked at her and I said, a complete disgust. I walked around the corner. She says, what, what happened there? And I says, hey, rugby, are you having a giraffe? I said, and in the change room before the match that night, he comes and sat down beside me and he says, mate, I have to admit that was the funniest moment of my weekend. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Super. But I wanted to be honest. So I was, you know, listen, I've, I've played with some cracking guys, you know, Jonah Lomu and some of the South Africans are some great boys in there as well. Uh, Francois yeah. Pina and these sorts of players. Um, Jules van der Vesthuizen and, you know, some real cracking players who unfortunately are not long, uh, no longer with us, which is... Yeah. Uh, Jerry Collins is another cracking player, very hard man, and I just love the way he played the game as well. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it's strange to sit here and uh, and to see some people that I would have played against who are no longer here, and, and mm. it's, it's it's awful shame. Yeah, but um, what what a career though, do you know, in terms of um, playing with some of the some of the biggest names in the game. I, I just think back uh, to that sort of Ireland team as well. You're talking about O'Driscoll coming into the fold just as you, yeah. as you were playing. And then you've got, I suppose there's other Ireland guys. Do you, you would have played against some of the, some of the hardest people. So who, who's the hardest sort of opponent you had? Maybe in the, in the back row, if you're talking opposite number, who's sort of the best six that you remember playing with? Um, uh, Playing alongside and against at times as well, more often against, was um, Lawrence Delalio was a cracking player. And yeah. 
a real good hard honest player and just grafted Richard Hill was another yeah. really good player Matty Williams was a cracker at the back row for Wales so you know it's been some absolute crackers and I've been very fortunate to play uh, with and alongside them as well so um, but I tell you what, there's one big player and he played for Ulster in Ireland and he was, in terms of hardness, uh, I was pleased I was with him as opposed to against him many a time because uh, it was big Paddy Johns. Paddy right, Johns okay. right. second row and stuff like that and he was in Saracens and yeah. Paddy gave me the yeah. biggest piece of advice uh, when I first went professional and he would obviously be professional prior to that over in England and he says, and, and Paddy's the funniest guy because he's such a quiet spoken big man, a real gentleman, and, and I love him to bits. And he, um, he says, Woody now, and he's got a real, has almost like a bit of a stammer when he talks, and he's real softly spoken. And he says, Woody, the, the biggest piece of advice I could give you is, is that when you're professional, make sure you get some rest. I said, all right, Paddy. He said, yeah, yeah, because you could burn out. He said, I, d- I did that. I just wanted to train every single minute and it just went against me. So it was, yeah. and in hindsight, it was the best piece of advice was to make sure you rest up because yeah. you're training hard. Your body goes through a lot and stuff. Yeah. Um, but Paddy was a hard boy. I mean, we played against South Africa over there and uh, Warren Gatlin was a coach at the time and Donald Annan was a manager. And, uh, they, they, and their wisdom, they, they came up, we, we were sort of under par and South Africa were very, very strong at the time. And um, we, we played the first test and got an absolute smashing from them physically and uh, on the scoreboard. So we came in and they said, right, we're not going to probably likelihood we're not going to win this. But gonna, one thing we will win today is the fights. Um, so we just had this 99 call and uh, it was a one and all in and Patty Johns, I mean, all my days. My kids actually look up YouTube and, and, and I said, put in the test match from, uh, oh, I can't remember the year, I think it was 99 or something there. And uh, Patty Johns, the ruck was over and he'd come in at 100 miles an hour and wiped out about three South Africans <laughs> while they were sort of looking sort of deal, you know, and the next thing a fight would erupt and we're in there and Patty's busting all around them. It was just absolutely, you needed eyes in the back of your head, but yeah. uh, he was a hardy boy and his big, I think the best story of Patty must be near the end of his career who's back at Ulster at the stage and coming to the end Paddy would have to come into the match into the change rooms about an hour and a half beforehand to get strapped up he had every finger strapped he had his knees his elbows ankles I think he was sponsored by 3M at one point and uh, he had the scrum cap on and elbow pads and knee pads and he ran through the old gate at Ravenhill I remember it was I think it was might have been his last match or something and so he ran out in front of me uh, as captain at the time and he ran out and I remember the crowd places packed and this little tiny voice yells out Paddy Jones, skate or die. He looked like a skateboarder. I never fell over. <laughs> so, uh, an absolute gent and off the pitch. He's just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Yeah, I know. It's it's um, a lot of sort of guys who who are sort of in the engine room don't get as much recognition uh, as as sort of backs who who t- typically get all the glory. So the likes of Paddy Jones, Gary Longwell back in the day as well, yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. All, all guys who who were who are vitally important to the team, but Paddy, it's interesting to hear, uh, you know, about him again because sometimes people have forgotten about. And I want to talk. I'll not keep you too much longer, but I'd like to to hear just about you sort of winding down as well. Like, how did you make the decision uh, to to ultimately move on from rugby, and what was that? What was that like? How, how did that go? 
Um, it didn't, I'll be honest with you, it didn't go particularly well, I'll be honest, because uh, I wasn't realistically ready to retire. Um, it was when Alan Clark and Mark McCall came in as a coaching staff. Yeah. Um, and um, I'd done one season with them guys, and I thought I was playing really good rugby at that stage as well. And um, yeah, they didn't want to renew my contract thereafter. I think it was more of a control thing, I think, because I had a lot of respect from the team and I was captain and been captain for four years or more. Yeah. Um, it was maybe I was a bit more of a threat than I was a, a, than anything else. And unfortunately, they didn't. Uh, so I made a decision to sort of, oh, well, if you're not going to give me a contract, I'm not really going to travel too far because back then we didn't really have agents. Um, to 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 go, but I, I still feel I probably could have done another two years and, and yeah. pretty nervous in there. But uh, yeah, so it left a little bit of a better pill in my mouth, to be honest with you. I did thirteen or fourteen years with Ulster, and um, just to be sort of drop kicked on the sideline was um, yeah, it wasn't the nicest thing to go about. But uh, it is what it is, and unfortunately, yeah. back in the day, I think. Um, Unlike today, they've got uh, people who can look after you psychology-wise and all that sort of thing. Whereas I was like, I just spent 13 years being told what shirt to wear and uh, training sessions and everything like that. And all of a sudden, that's just ripped out of you. And it's like, oh, and so what do I do now sort of deal? And so it was a bit of a loss for a wee while. And um, it took me, I was probably, to be honest with my family, it was a difficult fellow to live with for a day to. Say it definitely took me a couple of years to get over that fact, and uh, yeah. there was a lot of, of inner frustration and so on and so forth. But uh, um, thankfully, it got things through, and uh, yeah. yeah, so but we moved on and, and just sort of start up because I didn't uh, have a professional career as such. I wasn't a dentist or a doctor or anything like that to fall back into or anything. So it was really just so sort of, okay, cheapers. What am I going to do now? And, um, and I really enjoyed the fitness, and I always thought about uh, opening up a gym and. So I just decided to do that, and uh, thankfully it went well. And I had the gym set about three gyms there for a while, for about eighteen years. And um, yeah, yeah, and uh, we've thankfully uh, out of those now and doing something else. And I just spent sort of another eighteen years of my life motivating everybody else and trying to get them to their goals, which was uh, which was good. And and the rugby, I think, had left me in good stead to be in that position to do that, especially with the captaincy and all those sorts of things. It gives you a sense of responsibility and. Um, and also a little bit of belief that you can do these things. And uh, some of the skills that we learned through the rugby career was very transferable into the professional world. So yeah, um, so it, it's worked out well and I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And now I'm into a completely new chapter of my life. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing where this takes me. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of, uh, I mean, rugby is such a ruthless sport. And, uh, and mm. Um, do a lot of guys have spoken to at Ulster uh, and uh, from different eras uh, have spoken about that and, and, and whenever um, you're deemed sort of surplus to requirements it, it can be tough to move on but in terms of Ulster now like do you follow you I mean you've obviously done you've done television work and things like that yeah. do you consider yourself a fan do you, do you keep up with them and watch every game or um, I don't, yeah, I don't really go and do you know what we sort of lost touch um, with the whole thing because um, when Shane Logan and those sorts of guys were in there running the show and bits and bobs, I, I personally I don't think that that I think it had a detrimental effect on past players. Mm -hmm. uh, whereby we sort of not that we got the hump with it, but we just felt that we'd sort of maybe earned a right to 
to at least get ourselves a ticket down and, and to be in and around the stadium and so on and so forth. But uh, that never came to fruition. And it's only in recent times that that door has been opened again. So I probably do go down and watch them. And, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm an Ulster fan. I mean, I love the place uh, and it's, um, it's not just the rugby. I love the people in the country and everything that goes with it. So uh, it's been pretty tremendous to me and I've been very uh, fortunate in my, in my life and on my journey, my rugby journey, especially over here, it's been, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome to sit back. And, and, and now it's, uh, I'm at the stage now where I can look back and go, wow, it's pretty cool. So, uh, but I, I am a, I am a fan. I do follow them. I'm very interested to see where they, where they are and what they're doing and so on and so forth. And um, I suppose I'm still got a, there's a competitive spirit still in me where I like to go in there and grab a few of them by the scruff of the neck and say, are you for real, sir? Come on now. Um, can I just have a little word in your shell? And who do you, you know, who do you think you are? See that jersey you'll keep pulling on every week? You don't own that. You know that, right? That's part of the province. And um, you got yeah. to fill that thing, you know? You're not, uh, let's not be a coat hanger. This is, yeah. this, is, this is a real deal and I need you to fill it every week, so. Yeah. But that's just the competitive side of me coming out there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but that's, um, I suppose, that's what some players need. Um, man management's a really difficult thing. And the way that people, uh, the, the way coaching is going now, um, people people get very easily offended, you know, uh, and, and uh, very defensive. Whereas you were saying, playing for the 99 squad, you'd all have banter with each other and you'd slag each other off or... Uh, uh, but you'd all do it knowing that it's out of respect yeah. for each other and um, I find that interesting how, how the game has changed how people have changed the young guys coming into the yeah. game now um, yeah it, it, is there is there anyone at the minute uh, that you think is uh, that you've been watching who you're particularly impressed by is there I mean, what, what can Ulster do I suppose we've been through a big transition period in the past uh, sort of two three years what what's who are the players who stand out for you and what do you also need to do to get to that? You've won the European Cup. What do we need to do to do it again? Do you get to get to that level? Cheapers, um, if it's a crystal. Big question. <laughs> crystal, I know, cheapers. Oh, I, now I'm breaking sweat here, dude. I don't want to offend anybody, <laughs> but that's the problem, huh? because we, we live in a world that's so PC and, yeah. and uh, you know, people don't like criticism you know and it's not that we're we're we'd sometimes have been in the media and stuff like that and you it's not that we would uh, sort of criticize them as individuals but people seem to take it on their chin oh that's a personal dig at me and and yeah. why are you saying that about me and so I just get over yourself will you it would be my attitude yeah. and and that's probably the problem is that yeah. people are so big up themselves that they can't actually take constructive criticism and it's actually I mean I don't know about the current players, but I know when I, every time I played a game, I would go home and I wouldn't go to sleep until one or two in the morning because mm -hmm. I would be up analyzing myself. Mm -hmm. And I might've had a really good game. I got mad at the match, but I wouldn't focus on that. I'd focus on the negatives and, and, yeah. and try and rectify and better that. So when someone's actually telling you, listen, you did this and maybe did that, you don't slam that person. Actually, why don't you, for an instance, why don't you just take it on board Think about what being said and yeah. then go, hmm, maybe they have a point there and that could make me a better player. Maybe yeah. something along those lines might be a good shout. But um, in terms of how do we get Ulster bigger, better and stronger, 
um, Cubers. <laughs> they're starting with a real, polish the crystal ball for a start, but um, I think we've got to go back. It's, it's, we've got to go back into the schools. I think the branch have to really get into the schools for me. The academy, um, it's a great setup, um, but I, I just think there's, there's a lot of room in that area, in that department, and I think um, we, we potentially should stop putting a lot of smoke up a lot of players and actually make them into something that is worthy that we want. You know, if I was in the academy, I'd be saying to an individual player, why do you want the crowd to come and watch you? What are you going to do that someone else in this white shirt has not done before? What makes you so special? And actually drop that bomb into them and say, well, actually, I need to be something special. I need yeah. to do something a bit outside the box as opposed to just become another number in the squad. Yeah. I want to be the next person with the je ne sais quoi. Mm-hmm. It's everyone going to come and watch. Like I would have gone down and used to love watching Charles Biertel play. Yeah. Because yeah. Charles Biertel bought the magic. Yeah. Nick, yeah. Nick, Williams, yeah. Nick Williams bought the magic. Yeah. You know, these guys, so if I'm in the academy, if I was a player in the academy, that's what I would be focusing on. Not necessarily um, trying to get myself this immense big body. I would mm-hmm. actually be looking at my individual skill because that individual skill and magic is going to outweigh an extra 10 kilos. Yeah. Um, that'll yeah. come in the process and the fullness of time. Whereas I keep my skills, enhance my individual mm-hmm. talent and make that bigger and better. Yes, I might have been a talented school player, but you're now going to be entering into the men's department and you yeah. want to enter the men's department at the age of 20 with magic, not with an extra 10 kilos. So maybe that mindset and also fill them up and let them really realize how hard this is. Yeah. This, this, is, this is not an easy cakewalk here. Um, and just create that environment where it's absolutely horrible, lean, yeah. nasty but at the same time, massively rewarding yeah. because everybody loves to have their name in the headlights and anybody, it doesn't matter what sport it is. If you want your name in the headlights, what's that going to take? What sacrifice is that going to take? Um, and so start, I pull players along to individually and take them to one side and say, okay, what magic are you going to create? What is your journey going to look like? Where do you want to be in five years? And then walk back and say, oh, how did you get there? Let's break down how you're going to get to this point. Yeah. Um, so so that, that's where, I, to me, I don't know whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing. But for me, I just think it's, I would, I would ingrain into those guys that you're going to enter into the nastiest world you're going to go into. And if you can come out the other side of it, that's the player I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, I, I yeah. think that's an amazing attitude. Um, uh, to try and ingrain players. I think there's a an issue maybe with Ulster being historically a bit too nice, um, getting bullied by teams. And I, 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 a bit like yourself, do you know, love love players who who really get stuck in and um, yeah. uh, who you really hate playing against. And, and the way to create those players is to create that environment of, of sort of nastiness, hostility. Yeah. Uh, uh, guys know that they're in for a fight every training session and, uh, yeah. and, and living a lifestyle a bit like yourself going out doing extra 10k on a whatever day someday that's uh, it yeah and um that, that's what was gonna that was gonna be my last question actually like what, what advice would, would you give uh young players coming through you've covered a lot of it there uh so yeah. 
Um, I, if, I anybody, so. if, anybody, if any young player out there wants to sit down and have a chat, I'll pull out the old notebook. <laughs> but no, you know what? It, it is. And it's just, it's such a tough environment these days that these guys are trying, any sport that is, but rugby more so because it's so physically demanding. Yeah. You're playing, the, the player now seems to be bigger. Mm-hmm. I'd say that 10 kilograms of difference from when I was playing almost yeah. um, would be the norm. So mm-hmm. physically, it's going to be a bigger challenge. Um, so you need to bring the magic. And uh, for me, as, an, as a young player, never ever lose your skills. The basics yeah. that you should know is carry the ball in two hands, mm-hmm. or presentation, things like that, the ability mm-hmm. to offload. And I think if you keep working on that magic all the time, I remember going for a run. Uh, we, I grew up in a farm in New Zealand and I was going to go out for a little training run one day. My dad said to me, where are you going? I said, I'll go for a wee run, big son. I'm going to go out and get myself fit as for this rugby game. He says, well, where are you going with your hands empty? I says, what are you talking about? He says, take a rugby ball. I thought, oh, that'd be a good idea, actually. Yeah, just, you know, take See, after about five minutes of running, you know, you're bopping the, bo- the ball from one hand to the other and thought, this is great. I'm going out for about a 30-minute run here. I used to hate carrying the rugby ball. Yeah. And the method... The method to the madness was it's when you're absolutely knackered and you just, it's, you've got to still have the control of that ball. So yeah. by the end of the run, I was still trying to practice my skills and everything deteriorated immensely. So yeah. it's at that point, it's at that point that your skills get sharpened when you're, there's a very few people actually bring a rugby ball and they're in, completely at the bottom end of their, they feel like their world's about to drop out in a fitness session. Then you bring a rugby ball in. Yeah. And that yeah. Would be a good chance. So uh, just yeah. practicing those things when you're under pressure. Everything comes under pressure. The good players, when they're under pressure, you think they've got all the time in the world. It's because yeah. they practice under those conditions. So if I was a young yeah. player, I'd put myself loaded up and then see what you're made of. Yeah, great advice. And, and it's one of those things that separates probably, uh, you know, you're from New Zealand and you, you watch the All Blacks and all, every player in that team seems to have good hands. They have um, a bit extra. Um, uh, they can offload. And I think we're some way away from that still. But it's that attitude of, of yeah. um, being being prepared to put that extra work in and and being able to, always the Clive Woodward uh, phrase, think correctly under pressure. Whenever you're knackered, whenever you're under pressure, being able yeah. to rely on those core skills. And, and it will come back What's the old thing? I think the old saying is, uh, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Yeah, yeah, I know, absolutely. And um, again, it's uh, you've coached and you've captained and you know, there'll be people, young players listening to this as well as some Ulster guys. And I'm sure that's mm. inspiring to hear um, from someone who's been there and done it. Um, and I'm sure your, your sons are both benefiting from that massively, this advice and uh, being able to look back on old, old video clips of you playing as well. Um, I think that's cool that the next generation's coming through, so maybe we'll see them lining up. Well, well I hope so, but you know what? Yeah, fathers and their sons, I mean, they, everybody's got that what-do-you-know attitude, you know, but they'll listen to the neighbour before they listen to you, so uh, hopefully someday it'll fall on deaf ears, but uh, and if they, want, <laughs> if they want any gardening tips or anything like that, I'm your man. Sort of setting up this new business now. I'm out cutting grass and tidying hedges, and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm actually really enjoyed it. So yeah, 
look up Silver Fern Garden Maintenance. That's me. Um, so we're setting it up and I've just moved up to the North Coast and I'm thoroughly loving it. And uh, it's a beautiful part of the world as is the rest of Northern Ireland. But up here, it's just a little bit more special for me. And um, so I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I'm just going to set up a wee keyholder service for people with secondary homes as well. So uh, if anybody out there wants me to look after the house while they're out there, be in safe hands. Great idea and great plug and uh, I'm so jealous that you're living up the North Coast, love it up there and if I ever can afford a second house Andy. <laughs> <laughs> if I can afford my first, if I can afford my first house I'll move here as well so that'd be great. <laughs> I know, well Andy thank you so much for your time, I could sit and listen to you talk all day but um, I'll, I'll not keep you because that, that was fascinating and great advice and stories and love speaking to you so thanks again Andy. No problem, buddy. Take care. Okay, thanks, Andy. Bye. See you. Bye. Bye. Well, that was the interview with Andy Wars. What a legend. Ulster rugby legend. Played a lot for Ireland. And we wouldn't have had him had two old women not helped Andy uh, whenever he got a flat tyre and made him tea and sandwiches. So just those people being nice to him, and he hung around in Northern Ireland, became a rugby legend. And uh, I'm not sure what lesson to take from that, but I suppose be nice to stranded rugby players. And uh, yeah, it all worked out in the end for Andy. So um, you heard the, the plug there for, for Andy's business, um, Silver Fern. Give him a shout if you're lucky enough to have a house up in the North Coast. And apart from that, um, I just want to tell you about the next episode. It's with another uh, Ulster Rugby legend, Chris Henry. And uh, bear with me while I get that sorted and edited. And uh, that'll be up soon. Thanks again to Andy. Complete legend. Really nice guy. And uh, really enjoyed chatting to him.